first scripture reading is the book of Isaiah, chapter 59. If you're using that blue Bible in the pew, it's page uh, 618, Isaiah 59. We're going to read verses 1 through 8. I'll come back around to verse 1 and 2 later on in the sermon. But pay attention to verse 1 and 2, and then the connection of verse 1 and 2 with the rest of these verses. Isaiah 59, Behold, Yahweh's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity. And deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil. And they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know. And there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. And now we go to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter 3, which is page 1015. For any who are visiting, we're just doing a series through 1 and 2 Peter called Memories, Manners, and Mandates for God's Minority People. And this is where we are in the series. We're just picking up right where we left off. We finished chapter 2 last week, and we are picking up at chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word... They may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold, jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as to the weaker vessel, as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. All that I've read to you from the Old Testament to the New Testament is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, though it all seems fairly straightforward, this has become a tricky minefield in our day. Help us to be shaped by you and by your word, rather than by our majority culture. Amen. You may be seated. And so the sermon notes are on the back of the worship guide with lots of space for notes and some questions for your different groups. Tonight, we will actually, this evening, we will be picking up at our evening service, Nehemiah 3 and 4, if you can come back for that. 
My friends, you can see in the story of Aurelius Augustinus, we know him as Augustine, you can see his story and his confessions. I highly recommend his confessions. You will notice it's very autobiographical, but what's intriguing about Augustine's confessions is that it's autobiography as prayer. From chapter 1, first word, to the last word of chapter 13, it is all, Lord, you know all this, you were there, you shaped my life, but I offer this up in prayer to you. And so the whole thing is prayer. It's beautiful in many ways. And one part of his story that sticks out to me, sticks out of my mind when I read passages like 1 Peter 3, 1-7, through has to do with his mother. You see, as Augustine tells us, his mother, Monica, was a God-fearing woman who was brought into a marriage with Patricius Aurelius. And Patricius could be verbally and at times physically violent against Monica. And in a day when there was little recourse that a woman could take in the situation like that, there were no social workers to step in There was not going to be any police coming knocking on the door for a domestic abuse call. There was no court likely to hear her case. Monica did her best. And through her prayers, her patience, and her godly pattern, she lived to see both her wayward son Augustine become a believer, and she lived to see Patricius converted and become a better man before his death. Now, with her story in mind, let us walk with Peter here and think about better women and better men. I'm already in trouble with those two titles, but there you go. Better women and better men. Now, someone may say, Mike, what gives you the audacity to speak on this subject? Well, first off, it's just right here, and we're just going through 1 Peter. Well, do you feel qualified? Well, that's a great question. Let me give you a twofold answer. On one hand, I do feel qualified. I've been married 42 years. Or maybe Anna's qualified and I'm just tagging along. Whatever the case is, we've been married 42 years. So there's some, but in all honesty, brothers, sisters, if you don't know this, I almost never feel qualified to preach on any of the passages. So no, I don't always feel qualified, but I'm going to give it my best shot. So let's begin then with better women, verses 1 through 6. Peter is still doing what he's been doing since chapter 2, verse 13. He's still flowing down deeper and deeper. I finally brought a funnel. Deeper and deeper into the funnel. He is staying with the be subject to qualities. That started in chapter 2, 13. When he talked about, like the big mouth of our funnel, when he talked about our civil engagements and involvements, and then he goes on in chapter 2, verse 18, when he's talking, he moves to the estate and the household, and he's talking to Christian slaves, and he says to the slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect. It's getting narrower, and now he's right here talking to wives and husbands. He's moved into the house, be subject to. He's right here. The big point, the centerpiece of First Peter is chapter 3, 8 through 12, which is the spout where it all goes. So there, think of the funnel. That'll help you, I hope. And so Peter is still keeping to that theme. And so he writes, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own own husbands. Now notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say in a woman-demeaning way, women be subject to all men, every man, always men. He says, be subject to your own husbands. Just as 
The Apostle Paul said in Colossians 3 that we read before the confession of sin to your husbands. Now you know at that point, as soon as that fence post is put up, if you want to call it that, once that is put up, you know you've begun to move already away from a distorted and deformed patriarchalism. You know this also because you always keep in mind, as good Christians, you keep in mind the Trinity. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are equal in power and glory. And yet, there in the midst of that love, the Father and the Son loving one another and the Spirit involved in that, what does the Son do with the Father? He submits to the Father. And in the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are equal in power and glory, and they love one another, and the Spirit is that love. And yet, what does the Holy Spirit do with the Father and the Son? He submits to the Father and the Son. Keeping that all in mind, you realize we've moved miles away from a deformed, distorted patriarchalism as we come into this passage. Further, notice there are three aims for Peter's direction here. And they all three fit inside of all the things, that basically the things he has said since chapter 2, verse 13, to the end of chapter 2, verse, verse 25. And the three aims are winning, winning, being winsome, and living womanly. Winning, being winsome, living womanly. So here we go. Verses 1 and 2, the first aim is winning. So that, there's the purpose statement, even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now notice what Peter doesn't say. He doesn't say it's going to happen. They will be won. He says they may be won. He couches his language in potential language. They may be. It may happen. Why is that? Because we're not God's. And we cannot make our spouse, or for that matter, our older adult children, do whatever we want in our way, on our timing, and so forth. We're just not gods. So it may happen, but there's no guarantee. And yet you keep the pattern that's been going on since early in, or middle of chapter 2 to the end of chapter 2. That pattern is still playing out here. So remember, back in chapter 2, verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, a majority culture, keep your conduct honorable so that if anyone speaks against you as an evildoer, when he sees your good deeds, he'll have nothing to say before God. Or chapter 2, verse 15, after Peter has said, be subject every, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, he goes on to say, for this is God's will, to be subject to those institutions. Why? That by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Peter's keeping that pattern as he's talking here to women. This winning conduct is impactful. It just might be instrumental in God's hands for winning an obstinate husband. But even if it doesn't win those unbelieving or disobedient husbands, it will help to silence the ignorance of foolish people, including the ignorance of foolish husbands. And that's because this winning behavior is respectful and pure conduct. And so Peter's aim with this direction is to have winning women. There's the first one. Then verse 3 and 4, winsome. 
The second aim is winsome. By that I'm referring to attractive, lovely, cloaked and covered in beauty that arises from an inner beauty, a beautiful relationship with the Lord Himself, as it were. And so verse 3 and 4, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. We're back to the same thought that came up back in chapter 2 and verse uh, uh, verse 15, or verse 13. Be subject to every for the Lord's sake to every human institution. It's the same thing that keeps coming up in chapter 2. Look, it's precious in God's sight. That's one more reason to go this way. That's kind of what Peter is addressing there. Now notice, it's not that sprucing up the outward appearance is bad or totally forbidden. What Peter's driving at is that it's the outside must go with the inside. It's about the aim, it's about the focus, it's about the attention. It's very much in line with the sage observations from Proverbs. In Proverbs 11, verse 22, Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. Do you hear the conflict between the outer and the inner in that statement? Just as jarring and spooky and weird as that would be to see a pig running around with a gold ring, so is a beautiful woman outwardly who's not one inwardly. That's where Peter's coming from, and that's what he's driving at. So Peter's aim in this direction is to have winsome women. Winning, winsome. The final aim is for living womanly. Living womanly. It's there in verse 5 and 6, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. It's about following a long heritage of womanliness, godly womanliness, hope-filled womanliness. In fact, as Peter is showing here, is that this womanly way can be traced through a long line of sisterhood all the way back to Sarah. And that keeps Peter's theme. He's been saying things like this since chapter 1. Look, chapter 1, our faith is growing out of a long history of God's dealings that are laid out in the Hebrew Scriptures. Our faith, our Christianity is attached to and is united to All that you see going on in the Old Testament, we have this long, ancient heritage. So Peter's keeping to that here as well. Now my friends, in a 21st century day that is filled with novelty and newfangled approaches that come and go with the newest, and I'm putting scarecrows quotes around all of these, around uh, that uh, that come and go with the newest scientific, the newest psychological, the newest therapeutic, the newest ideological, the newest legislative fads that come in and they flash and they sizzle, but then they go up and smoke. There is this ancient, long-lived heritage that flows through Scripture, that trans, that goes beyond the moment. And so to put it simply, this is part of the way to be better women. But now I'm going to take a little jaunt into the bushes along Peter's walkway here. It's in that last statement, that last sentence, 
in verse 6, And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. That word frightening coming from the Greek has different translations. If you have an ESV, NIV, New King James, Old King James, whatever, you'll see that it's translated a little bit differently. It's something like this. And do not fear anything that strikes fear. Do not fear anything that is intimidating. Do not fear anything that terrifies. Now, we have to put Peter back in his context like we did last week with slaves. And when you do that, thinking about Monica, for example, when you do that, then you realize Peter has just stepped into the hard reality of many women in most of the world throughout much of human history, such as Augustine's mother, Monica, in the hands of his father, Patricius. Or very much like happened when we lived in Turkey, and we rented a house at Angelic Village, which is right outside Angelic Air Base, and Anna will remember this. The house was too big for us, and so we gave the owner back the living room so we could just have the bedrooms, and we had everything we needed back there. The living room was locked off, and so the owner, the Turkish owner and his wife and mother-in-law and a baby, would have their suppers in that living room. And so there was a curfew at that time, a military curfew, so from like 10 to 4 in the morning, you couldn't go out into the streets. I was on base doing my job. I was a cop at the time on base. I was patrolling and all those things. And when I finally come home, right after the curfew's over, I come into the door, I cannot find Anna. She has moved her presence to the furthest room in the house behind the locked door to get as far away from what she heard all night long in that living room. It was horrible. She was trapped. She couldn't go out because she would have been arrested for breaking curfew and other things would have happened. She was stuck there. This happened in our lifetime. We saw it. We heard it. And there wasn't a thing could be done about it because they didn't have the laws for that kind of stuff because they don't, I don't want to go further, but they don't have the laws for that kind of stuff. That's the hard, unfortunate, painful, horrendous reality of many women in most of the world throughout much of human history. Moose alerted me the other day that it wasn't too long ago in Oklahoma in the 1980s that a victim of domestic abuse had to call the cops and then sign a ticket with the cops, and then she had to put her abuser under citizen's arrest. Now, if you've ever been in a situation like that, you know that's probably not going to happen because you're scared stiff of the one who just beat you. You know what I'm saying? Thank God the law's changed. My friends, in a time and a place in human history when there would, be, would have been little to no recourse to justice, Many women endured much agony from the lips and the hands and the fists of their husbands. And in many places, they still do. And so Peter is writing into this environment. He has this environment of mind. And so what Peter is saying is not mandating, it is not supporting, it is not sheltering, and it is not protecting abusive marriages. But for those who would find themselves in that kind of a world where there's no recourse then Peter is actually giving directions that will help women show their honorableness in a most dishonorable situation. And it reflects our own Lord's prefiguring example we talked about last week as you look back at verse 23 of chapter 2. 
When he was reviled, he did not revile and return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. I have much to say about domestic abuse. We'll say more as days go by, as years go by. But for today, I highly recommend a little book by Darby Strickland. She's a counselor in the PCA called Domestic Abuse, Help for the Sufferer. I ordered 30 of these. They should be here any day. So don't go out and buy one. If you just come back, I'll have some here for you. She does a great job, and I think, no, I'm convinced everyone needs to read it on domestic abuse. So now in Peter's letter with better women, he now comes to better men. And that's verse 7. Verse 7. Notice how he begins. Likewise. Peter is keeping to his be subject to quality that he's been laying out since chapter 2, verse 13. And so the likewise here, when Peter says likewise husbands, he is saying likewise husbands be subject to your own wives. Now that may sound shocking to a few, but Peter then shows what that manly subjection looks like. So just follow with me through verse 7. The first is, live with your wives. Now that may sound odd, but there is an intentionality there behind that statement. Live with your wives. Don't live in your mind and in your imagination with someone else. Don't live inside your head with your fantasy woman. Live with your wives. But especially, live with your wives in an understanding way. In an understanding way. Now, honestly, this is where most of us guys stub our toes. Let's be honest. For example, in man circles, I know this goes on in women's circles too, but I'm talking to the guys right now. In man circles... There are all kinds of jokes about how impossible it is to understand that woman. It's like the picture that I've seen bandied about for years um, that says at the top of the picture, it says, Finally, gentlemen, the book on how to understand your wife has finally been written and it is available. And then when you look at the picture, it's a four-foot-tall book with over 150,000 pages in it, right? It's like, whoa! But I want you to realize... Peter's spirit-inspired, Jesus-commanded direction. Remember, Peter is not giving you his opinion. He is a specifically hand-picked spokesperson of Jesus. This is Jesus speaking through Peter to us. Peter's spirit-inspired, Jesus-commanded direction tells us that living with our wives in an understanding way is not impossible. I was meeting with a man from another town. He and his wife have been having some serious troubles. And part of the trouble is that he sees and he hears and he thinks in different ways than his wife, and it just baffles him. And so I directed him to 1 Peter 3, 7. And I said something like this, quoting myself, look, the first way you are to subject yourself to your wife is that um, you're to make the effort You're to put in the sweat and the brain muscle that's needed to learn who she is and why she perceives life and love and purpose the way she does. That what has happened is that God has commissioned you to be a detective investigating the inner ways of your wife. That's what I told him. 
I mean, let's be honest. The problem is not that we cannot understand our wives. The problem is that we often don't want to understand our wives. It was like the church member I had in another space and time continuum in a land far, far away. He'd been married about a year. And he and his wife were having troubles and he came to me. He just started unloading. He said he just couldn't fathom why his wife didn't like to do the things he had always liked to do as a single man. And why she felt neglected. I took him to 1 Peter 3, 7. I said to him what I just said a minute ago about being a detective. And he looked at me with glazed eyes and literally he said, Why? And so, first, we are to live with our wives and live with them in an understanding way. But then Peter goes on to say we're to show honor to her as a weaker vessel. Now, Peter is not saying that our wives are necessarily the weaker ones, but we're to treat them honorably as such. Why would he say that? Well, throughout human history. Throughout human history, almost all women, between the ages of 13 and 43, in a lifespan of about 50 to 60 years, from the ages of 13 to 43, were usually busy with one primary thing. And what was that? Conceiving and bearing children. And in a short lifespan of 40 to 60 years, that is the vast majority of their life. And it makes you physically vulnerable. Right? I mean, it does. And that's why part of why he's addressing this. I think that most of the gentlemanly codes that we grew up with, guys, were actually reflecting that. The opening of the door and standing up on the bus when a woman comes in was reflecting that scenario. It was very, meant to be very Christian and very honorable. The things have changed in the West over the last 70 years with our new birth control, especially abortifacient birth controls. But still, treating your wife not as one of the guys, all gruff and physical with all that chest thumping and verbal and physical finger jabbing, but to treat your wives honorably, understanding her, is the point. And I want you to notice that Peter lays out two reasons there in verse 7. First he says, because you are equal. Your wife has equal standing with you before God. She is an heir together with you in the grace of life. In the grace of life, the very life, chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, the very life that was bestowed upon us despite what we deserve. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's incorruptible and undefiled, does not fade away, etc. We also receive that life the same way our wives receive that, that, light, that life. We received it by God's grace alone, in faith alone, through Jesus alone, together. God in heaven doesn't look around and say, well, wives, I'll give you a second chance later, but first I've got to go for the guys. No, it's both. He saves us both the same way. We're heirs together of the grace of life. And you think about that. Go back to my illustration from the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are equal in power and glory. 
And in a similar way, though they have different functions, and there is submission in there and all of that, but still they are equal in the same way your wife is your equal before the face of God. And what that means is the way you treat your wife is the way you're treating God. That's what Peter is shoving home in our hearts, men. The way you treat your wife is the way you're treating the God who saved you and her. It's pretty potent. That's why he says what he says at the very end of verse 7, so that your prayers may not be hindered. That statement should stop all of us dead in our tracks. Now, Peter's going to come back to hindered prayers again when he gets to chapter 4, verse 7. And this is what he's going to say in chapter 4, verse 7. Therefore, be, sober, be self-controlled, sophroneo, and sober-minded, nafo. Those words should sound familiar. Be, so, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. To mistreat your wife is not sober-minded, And it is not self-controlled. To slander your husband and to berate him is not sober-minded and is not self-controlled. And if we take that tact, our prayers are affected and can be hindered. I mean, God has addressed this in numerous scriptures and He said it especially in that passage we read in the Old Testament in Isaiah 59. When he said, look, God is not hard of hearing. He doesn't have to turn up his hearing aid. No. The reason why your prayers aren't being heard, God says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And what's intriguing to me is that in that context, he lists the sins, and some of them are physically and socially violent and even deceitful in courts and so forth, right? He attaches all of that stuff that would fit to even marital relationships. Peter's just simply referring to what God has already said in Scripture. So that your prayers may not be hindered. Those are the two reasons to do what he has talked about earlier. Lastly, my friends, I want you to see that neither here, nor in Ephesians 5, verses 21 through 33, nor in Colossians 3 that we read earlier in the service, or anywhere else in Scripture, are we men told to force our wives to be subject to us. We're never commanded to do it. We're never mandated. We're not even given permission to double up our fists and demand it. Rather, following the Lord's example, Ephesians 5, we invest ourselves in our wives flourishing and our wives thriving. I'm going to use an illustration that may mean nothing to any of you, but it will mean something to William, and it means something to me. I was waking William up back there. Like a dancer, spelled Frenchly, right? D-A-N-S-E-U-R, a male dancer in a ballet, a dancer who uses his masculine structure and his muscular abilities to display the grace and the beauty of the ballerina that he's dancing with. You and I, we are called upon to support, to strengthen, to embrace and engage our wives so that they may thrive and they may blossom in their beauty and especially that they may not live frightened 
and may burgeon with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And to do so is to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. But I end with this. All of this sounds like law, law, law. In a sense it is. But all that Peter's driving at here, and all that I'm saying, all of these manners and mandates are all because of Jesus. Just go back and look at chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. They're all because of Jesus, because of our, what our Lord did to us and for us. Go back to chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. How He made us, despite what we deserve, He made us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you, men, women, were not a people, but now you, men, women, are God's people. Once you, men, women, had not received mercy, but now you, men, women, have received mercy. So Peter, by the mandate of Jesus, marks out the manners of God's minority people and it affects even our marriages. Let us pray. Oh Lord our God, we are grateful that you care about our marriages. And you've even mapped out a way that is far more beautiful. Far more beautiful than a society that we live in wants to see marriage. And the disdain that our present moment treats marriage with. Lord, I pray for us, men and women, as we have fallen short all these things that you have laid out for us, Lord, forgive us for falling short. Forgive us for not following through. And pick us back up and clean us up. Put us back in the game. And make us, by your grace, through Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, better women and better men that we may truly proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. In Jesus' name, amen.